Association of Nurse Practitioners. I'm your host, AANP President April Kapu, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AAMP's official podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. Today, I'm so excited to bring you the latest edition of the Dean Series, which provides us the opportunity to hear from the heads of distinguished academic programs across the country as they share insights about NP education and its pivotal role in our profession. Our guest today is Dr. Sarah Zanton, Dean of the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing and directs its Center on Innovative Care in Aging. She is the Patricia M. Davidson Professor for Health Equity and Social Justice. Dr. Zanton has received numerous accolades for her work around social determinants of health including the Heinz Award in Human Condition category for leading the development of, and this is big, Community Aging in Place Advancing Better Living for Elders program, also known as CAPABLE. After completing her Bachelor of Arts in African American Studies at Harvard University, she earned a BSN from Johns Hopkins, then an MSN from the University of Maryland, and then returned to Johns Hopkins where she earned her PhD. Dr. Zanton is a member of the National Institute for Nursing Research Strategic Planning, that committee, and last year she became a member of the National Academy of Medicine. Today, we'll hear from Dean Zanton about her early work as a health policy advocate focused on family planning and reproductive health, and then how she later fell in love with the whole body, as she puts it, and decided to pursue a career as a nurse and an academic with a special emphasis on geriatrics and social determinants of health. Welcome Dr. Zanton. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thank you. And before we get started, I just want to congratulate you. So the 2023 U.S. News and World Report rankings just came out. Can you share with our audience a little bit more about Johns Hopkins and where you ranked? (laughs) I'd be (laughs) delighted to. So we ranked number one in the master's program, which we've, this is our fifth year of that. And number one in the DNP program. And that's our first year of being ranked at that. So we are just thrilled. And the U.S. News doesn't rank the PhD programs, but we know we're the best in that too. Okay. Yeah. And I, I am not going to argue with that. So congratulations. <laughs> I you. think that is amazing. It says so much about um, education in particular NP education. So we are just thrilled to be able to talk to you a little bit more today. So why don't we start off a little bit about your background? Can you share more uh, with our audience about kind of your background and your career, how you got started? 
Sure. I'm really happy to. And so my, I come from a long line of doctors and, um, and my mother was, had a career. She had a PhD also. She had a career of helping to try to translate research into policy back a long time ago. So I kind of come from this background of health into policy and um, went my first job after college um, was as a lobbyist on Capitol Hill. And I wasn't particularly interested in nursing. I was interested in health policy and in access to health care. And uh, I ended up at the National Family Planning and Reproductive Health Association, which represents the Title X clinics. So that's the Planned Parenthoods, the county health departments, the other places where nurse practitioners work to assure access to timely and appropriate reproductive health care. And I took nurses around Capitol Hill, nurses and nurse practitioners, helping them message what they were doing, helping them be able to explain their story, tell what they do in the clinics and why it's so important and why it's such an important access to healthcare. And along the way, realized that their job sounded a lot more fun than my job. Um, And so started volunteering at a free clinic um, and came to Johns Hopkins to become a nurse and then a nurse practitioner. Wow. So what impressed you most uh, back? So you were out there advocating for nurse practitioners before becoming a nurse practitioner. Right. What was there something that impressed you uh, significantly about the nurse practitioner profession? Yeah. So it was a combination of the, the deep experience with other humans and um, that sort of therapeutic connection that I could hear in people's stories with their, um, the nurse practitioners I was interacting with, with their policy acumen and their ability to use their stories and their relationships with uh, people on Capitol Hill to affect change. And uh, I'll never forget, I was in the Capitol one time and Senator Ted Kennedy rushed out of a vote to a group of nurses and health health policy advocates to ask about a particular way he should vote on 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 a particular matter and here was this you know lion of of policy wow. experience coming to the nurses to ask what he should do and make sure he was getting it right cuz sometimes you know a word here or there can mean the difference in okay. um in a lot about practice and regulation and so that really impacted me a lot I thought at the time there were certificate programs for a nurse practitioner if you were in reproductive health. And I came to Johns Hopkins thinking I wanted to do that, you know, have a BSN and then do a certificate. Um, and I walked in the door thinking that and walked out having fallen in love with the whole body, <laughs> lungs, hearts, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, legs, the mind, um, and, uh, and realized how important as a nurse practitioner it would be to have the full, you know, at the time masters now DNP rather than have a quickie certificate um, that at the time was available for reproductive health nurse practitioners. Okay. So, so you, you learned early on, or you saw early on that the nurse's voice was very important and that there were those that really tuned in uh, when nurses spoke. And then you started to think about what they did and and that you would pursue nursing and in particular were interested in reproductive health. So did you stay with reproductive health or (laughs) or what did you do as a nurse practitioner? I I didn't. Um, Well, so I, first I was 
a nurse with a bachelor's and my first job was with migrant health workers in okay. rural Pennsylvania. They were picking apples and then peaches, peaches and then apples um, in the summer and then the fall. And that was really eye-opening for me, partly in terms of health disparities. Mm -hmm. There were three different camps, they would call them, of workers, and they were completely segregated by ethnicity. So one was um, immigrants from Guatemala and Mexico. Um, mm -hmm. One was African-Americans from the deep south of the U.S. and one was Haitians. And they had very different, they were doing the same job in the same place. But um, the the immigrants were, were were much healthier. They were the people who had come to the U.S. for opportunity, but they'd had no preventive health care. So, for example, we had a dental night and just the number of teeth people were missing. And mm -hmm. some a dentist pulled someone's tooth and their whole top of their jaw came out. Um, and so that just the dental um, situations were so extreme with the immigrants and with the African-American um migrant workers from the deep South, they had just a list of comorbidities that was, you know, longer, you know, very long problem list, as one might say in clinical practice. Mm -hmm. um, and for, for them, it was, you know, to be in the U S and be a migrant worker is an experience of, of one of, of real lack of opportunity. And so mm -hmm. seeing these saints, all human, and all doing the same job in the same place and time, but such different health trajectories, partly based on their experience, was really interesting to me and impactful in terms of my growth. Um, and after that, I worked with adults experiencing homelessness. I worked in um, a clinic, healthcare for the homeless, and also out in the shelters and on the streets. And that mm -hmm. job, they were also interested in my experience as a lobbyist and advocate. Mm -hmm. And so that job was 50% time doing advocacy and 50% time as a nurse, which was a really fun combination because I was getting that therapeutic um, rapport that we all love with patients. Right. And I was able to tell their stories and affect change on the state and local level. And you already had that experience in right. terms of the advocacy. Oh, yes. Then I went to nurse practitioner school at University of Maryland. And I'm very proud of University of Maryland, which is a fantastic school. Mm -hmm, it is. Um, and, um, and at the time, I was not interested in aging. So um, I, I really almost shut my ears to, um, to aging in nurse practitioner school. But um, my, one of my first jobs after becoming a nurse practitioner was doing um, house calls with low-income older adults who were homebound, often okay. homebound by, their, by what their house looked like and being able to get around as much as by their chronic conditions. And so I really had to learn gerontology and geriatrics on the fly and from great mentors um, because I, I didn't um, experience it as much in school for my own fault, not because of Maryland. And it was a, a straight adult NP at the time. Wow. So at each stage, though, as um, certainly uh, as a nurse and um, as a nurse practitioner, you still worked in areas of serving patients that historically have been less served or underserved and really focusing on um, not only healthcare disparities, but health equity. Um, so tell us a little bit more about did, did your policy background influence your NP work as well? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think um, 
I, I've always had a lens for what is the next thing to change the situation? You know, how do we close the loop? How do we not just see this patient and move on to the next one? Um, how do we reflect and see across patients and across patterns and what, what we can change and what policy levers. And, you know, there's the old, old saying that we live life forward and we understand it backwards. Um, and I think at the time I was thinking these are very different kinds of jobs and very different kinds of populations, but really each one of them, people who were migrant workers who were often living in um, actually repurposed chicken coops and people who are experiencing homelessness and people who are homebound were all at this intersection of housing and health and right. inadequate housing or to meet their needs. And, um, and all of those I kind of over time realized were so important to me in terms of trying to change the world. <laughs> right, right. So what you've just described so beautifully and um, really told the story behind social determinants of health and how that's woven throughout your career. And so now you um, are an academic. So when we first opened the podcast, um, you shared a little bit more about Johns Hopkins, where you're the dean and um, that you um, are ranked number one in your master's and doctorate program. Congratulations again. But um, so now you're dean. Uh, so how did you go from nurse um, and certainly a policy advocate, nurse practitioner into academics? Well, um, so th that's a great question. And, <laughs> you know, for anyone who's listening, I think, you know, you always want to keep as many options on the table and, and life is long and there's a lot of phases in it. And we do the, the best next right thing, you know, that what's, what's, what's the right thing to do next. And um, education certainly widens those possibilities in terms of what one can do. Um, when I was a nurse practitioner, I started teaching as a clinical instructor here at Johns Hopkins also. So okay. I was in, you know, the labs that, for any nurse practitioner listening, we've all been in those classes where you're, you know, looking in each other's ears and listening to each other's mm -hmm. hearts. And so I, I started off by teaching in the skills lab essentially. And so I had a, actually, when I was seeing how doing house calls um, for people who are homebound, I was doing that halftime and then halftime being a clinical instructor at Johns Hopkins. And, um, I, my, some of my colleagues were, uh, had PhDs and, um, I, in talking to them kind of in the downtimes of the skills lab realized, um, how much vaster my impact could be. I loved working with students in that one-on-one -on -one way and with my clients, but I could see that if I got a PhD, the, rather than only seeing change on the one-on-one -on -one level, I could, I could um, have a, have a larger impact with, with research. Um, and so I, I uh, quit at the time we were not allowed to, and I think it makes sense, not allowed to be um, teaching and being a student in the same situation. So I, I quit and became a full-time student at Johns Hopkins in the PhD program. Okay. Okay. So you're a full-time student focus. And what was your research focus? So my research focus was in um, financial strain among older adults. And so that okay. kind of pulled together the, the house calls experience. And, and we, one of my dissertation papers, we showed that even adjusting for income, so people who had the same income, um, 
and adjusting for chronic conditions. So the same number of chronic conditions, people, women who had financial strain, meaning not enough money to pay their bills on a regular fashion, were 57% more likely to die in the next five years. And um, financial strain, and I won't get too academic for your listeners, but financial strain is a really important measure, more important as we showed in that study than income to some extent, because it's uh, maneuverable. So if you don't have enough money to meet your bills, um, there are things we can do to decrease the bills, right? So someone right. could um, be on generics instead of really fancy medications from their nurse practitioner or doctor's office, potentially, or they we could help sign them up for LIHEAP or other things that help pay their heating bills or maybe rental assistance. You know, there's ways you can supplement someone's income or decrease mm-hmm. their expenses. And so it's easier for all different kinds of people to impact someone's financial strain than their income. Okay. So, so you got your PhD and then, but now, but then you are impacting students on a much larger level. It does seem like now that you're taking all of your experiences and learnings and and different roles, and now you're applying that broadly for the students there um, at Johns Hopkins. So can we take just a moment and for our listeners, um, share a little bit more about your definition of social determinants of health? Yeah. So um, I was just teaching a class right before this, and we were talking about the 2010 paper by Frieden et al. that's in the American Journal of Public Health um, that has the um, kind of clinical impact pyramid that has social determinants on the bottom, meaning those are the things that have the most impact. They're kind of bedrock on health. And um, as you go farther up the pyramid, there's things like vaccines and Um, And you get to the top and it's one-on-one clinical interventions. And those are important. Those will always be important. That's, you know, what we do on a one-on-one level with, with patients. But as you are at the top of that pyramid, you're requiring individuals, you know, nurses and doctors and patients to do to do unique thing, you know, to take their medicine, to exercise, to, and farther down the pyramid takes less individual action and has more impact on people's health. So the neighborhood one's in the water, one's able to drink the, um, whether you can afford your medications, all of those things are things that we can solve on a policy level and help people access for a lot of people. The things that require individual action are both harder to do and have less impact. But as clinicians, we're often kind of stuck in that top part of the part of the triangle, just nagging people to take their medication or nagging mm-hmm. people to exercise mm-hmm. when um, social determinants and the impact of them show us how important it is to, to address all the way down through the pyramid. That's right. You know, I was reading uh, something that you wrote. So you said this, you said, understanding a person in the context of life is our wheelhouse. And I assume you're referring to nurses, Mm -hmm. nurse practitioners. Mm -hmm. Tell us more about that. (laughs) So what I mean by that is if you look at public health and medicine, which are both, you know, really important fields, obviously, Public health tends to be a little bit more, you know, the air we breathe, the, the water we drink, the, the very large, you know, the vaccinations, things that affect the population as a whole, you know, people say they save lives millions at a time. And right. in medicine, our colleagues tend to focus a little bit more on the, a disease and stopping that disease or, or preventing that disease. Um, and maybe not so much. the the overall person, they might be looking at the heart disease or, you know, the liver disease as what I mean by context, the understanding of the person's context 
that's our wheelhouse. What I mean is we are the discipline that looks at the whole person, their physiology, their psychology, what they believe, what matters to them in the context of their family and a caregiving they're doing. Are they a parent? Are they a grandparent? Are they a child? What's it, are they being bullied in school? Do they have enough food to eat? All of those parts around them, the whole person and what matters to them and their health. That's our wheelhouse. And that's where social determinants comes into play. And that's, that's, we should, we need to own that. And not only is that important in terms of our knowledge, but that's why we're going to lead the future of health because um, population health is where the world is going and people being healthy. And it's going to be our profession that focuses on the whole person and that is going to be leading really um, incentive, you know, fiscal incentives in the way that health systems are paid. That's right. And, you know, um, you brought into some of the components of the more recent future of nursing report 2020-2030. And so I'm sure you are incorporating that through everything. How do you think that particularly highlights what you've just described so beautifully? So the future of nursing 2020-2030 report essentially says that health equity is, is the most important thing that we all need to be striving for and how are we going to do it as nurses and that nurses are uniquely positioned to achieve health equity to, for the whole nation. And, um, and what are the tools? What do we need to be doing? It highlights, you know, cases and research questions. And um, so social determinants is a big part of that, but also, you know, just the one-on-one -on -one work that we do with individuals, the families and, and communities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yep. It's, it's all throughout mm -hmm. all of the, all of the recommendations. So I want to read one more thing because I thought this was very compelling. Our job, and this was from your, um, something you'd written as well online. Our job is to lead our students into the future and equip them for the many roles and settings where our profession is growing. So when you say equip them, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, your listeners may or may not know that already four out of 10 nurses do not work in acute settings. Okay. So acute settings will always be vital. You know, we need our hospitals, we need our emergency rooms, we need our operating rooms, our ICUs, we need them to be fully staffed with fantastic nurses of, at all levels, nurses and nurse practitioners and CRNAs. Um, but the way that healthcare is going is to outpatient and to, that healthcare is going to where we work, where we play, where we pray, where we shop online, um, where we shop physically, like minute clinics. And as leaders, as a leading school of nursing, we need to be thinking to that future and how to equip nurses and nurse practitioners to be able to lead that future. And um, there'll be a smaller and smaller employment base in acute settings vital, really important, but they'll be smaller. And what, well, we're going to be imagining that what does health look online and what do people need to know? And now that the payment models are flipping so that people are paid, um, you know, practices and providers are paid for how healthy their patient is rather than if they've seen them a visit recently, Maybe we're, we're, maybe we're, you know, having more asthma clinics in the schools, or maybe whole families are coming into the schools to be for wellness checks, or, you know, that is our wheelhouse. That is mm -hmm. what, what, 
what, what, where nurses and nurse practitioners are perfect. So there's just going to be this big fundamental shift towards people's homes and the communities and where they live life. And that is um, where we will shine. And I'm trying to equip our students for that and the, hopefully the rest of nursing as well. Yeah. And so many nurse practitioners today work in that space and they're doing exactly what you just described over 90% or just about 90% of our over 325,000 nurse practitioners in the U S today are primary care. And, and many are moving into rural health, but certainly providing care in all settings. And so I did want to ask you, you talked a little bit about educating your students. And a lot of times people will talk, how do you uh, educate and prepare a nurse practitioner to do exactly what you have just described and exactly what so many of our nurse practitioners are doing today. So there's something really neat about nurse practitioner education. And I've been trying to ask the different deans about that. And I've been learning so much myself. So can you tell us, uh, share a few of the highlights about nurse practitioner education that prepares them so well uh, for providing care across all of these settings we've just talked about. Well, great. So I think, you know, as nurses, we shine in seeing the person right in front of us and what matters to them and um, addressing them holistically. And that goes so much farther in terms of primary care than if we're just looking at a problem list and checking off what we think needs to happen and scooting them out the door. And in terms of education, we are busy preparing people for to be able to treat and work with any kind of person from any kind of background, be able to see them for who they are, for any challenges that they're up against and leveraging their strengths, their beliefs, their pride, their connections with their family members or, or, or with themselves to be able to, to work on their health. And um, so I'm not sure I have a specific tips, but I think nurse practitioners are just that, that great sweet spot between many different aspects of science, you know, we're, we're generalists in a way, even if we're in a specialty, we're generalists in terms of being right in the middle of, you know, psychology and physiology and motivation and all the different attributes that nurse practitioners bring to um, develop that therapeutic relationship that enables someone to be able to uh, be at their best health. Right. Right. And, and wow, over the last two to three years, never more than ever before has that really been highlighted. Uh, not only have we seen uh, nurse practitioners really shine and excel in, in this space throughout the pandemic, but we've also seen a lot of the, the issues that we have in healthcare really magnified. Um, over the past couple of years. So anything you want to say around the pandemic and what's happened over the last couple of years? I'm really glad you brought that up because I've been thinking as we've been talking that, that we haven't talked about that. And I just, it's just been such a hard two years for, for the whole country. And I want to give a big shout out to all the nurses and nurse practitioners who have been going above and beyond and who have been, you know, holding down 
units in places where um, where people have been, you know, leaving for other opportunities or needing to take care of their family. And for all the people who have children at home and they've been having a harder time working and for all of the people who just the, the, the burnout and, and sometimes the abuse people have been facing. Um, I know we can get through this and we'll come out on the other end. And I think we'll learn a lot as researchers and as a society for how to build not just individual resilience, you know, not just it's good to take a walk or it's good to get outside, but structural resilience, what we can be doing to changing health systems so that nurses and nurse practitioners can thrive no matter what's happening. Right. Right. So any words of wisdom or <laughs> thoughts uh, for our listeners today? Um, I, I would say, you know, that being a nurse practitioner is a fantastic job. And that um, if you come back to school to, to get a PhD, um, doing research can be a way to impact um, more and more people. And that can be a really exciting thing. I also think there's, a, there's just so many pathways for nurse practitioners to also, you know, get a law degree or an MBA or other, you know, when when people leave, get a law degree and they go on to start a business or be in politics, nobody says, oh, they're wasting their law degree. But when people have a nursing degree and they go on and get an MBA or go into politics or, or leave and start a business, people often say, oh, they're wasting their nursing degree. But it's not true. Nursing is this foundational understanding of humanity. And then we get the clinical experience that shows us what needs to happen. And it's a fantastic platform for all kinds of other careers. So I hope everyone stays in nursing, but there's, we also need, we need more nurse entrepreneurs, more nurse businesses, more nurse lawyers. And um, so there's room for all of us. And, uh, but so come back to school. Absolutely. And you know what? I think it was so neat how you said your initial impressions of nurses and nursing when you are a health policy advocate was the most compelling uh, thing to hear for a legislator or for you yeah. um, during that time were the stories. Right. And I think those stories are exactly what impact all of the different roles yes. uh, that, a, that a nurse could potentially take uh, in the future. Those stories and those one-on-ones with patients and those experiences are so valuable. Yes. So I agree. I totally agree. Well, thank you, Sarah. It has been so nice spending a few minutes with you today, your wisdom, your insight, and thank you for all you do to educate um, our nurse practitioners and all you've done um, as Dean and as a nurse and throughout your career. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And I thank you for leading such an important organization and for having platforms like this so that more and more people can learn about nurse practitioners. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for sharing your insights and your experiences with us today. As you said, nurses are uniquely positioned to achieve health equity for the whole nation, and that should be among our top priorities. Your work educating future nursing professionals about social determinants of health and addressing disparities in underserved communities is absolutely inspiring. Nurse practitioners focus on the whole person and the whole community, and this is why, as you so eloquently stated, nurses will lead the future of healthcare. To our listeners, as we talk about 
pivotal NP leaders about the great strides they're making in healthcare and the future of the NP role, I am sure many exceptional NPs and NP advocates come to mind. If so, I encourage you to submit a nomination for one of your deserving colleagues for the 2023 AANP State Award for Excellence. The deadline for submitting your nomination is September 9th. I'd also like to extend a personal invitation for you to attend the 2022 AANP Fall Conference in Anaheim, California, just next month, September 15 through 18. What a wonderful opportunity for all of us to connect with colleagues and choose from more than 100 continuing education sessions. Now, if you can't join in person, please join On Demand. Visit this episode's description for more information about these opportunities from AANP. Please subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, be effective, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. (laughs) 